Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life-giving, that it is eternal. We thank you that we have this time to gather here together to hear from your word, to think about it together. We pray that your spirit would move in this place and that you would be our teacher, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth and that your name would be glorified in it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, you may or may not know this about me. If you know me fairly well, you'd know this, but I'm a pretty big uh, music fan. I like music a lot. Uh, I have for a long time, just from all, uh, as long as I can remember it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a musician. I am not a musician. Uh, I am not a singer. I, I wish I had those talents. I just don't. Uh, if there were any uh, lingering thoughts that maybe I do, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was taking the sermon. We recorded the whole service, and then we'll cut the sermon out, and I had the task of doing that a couple weeks ago. And I was, I was getting ready to cut it, and then I realized uh, as the music was playing, I was looking for where the sermon started, that I had left my microphone on. And uh, I heard this noise. You know, there's, there's Phil, and then there's Melissa, and it's this beautiful singing, and then there's this noise in the background that's like, oh. And I went, what in the, you know, I was thinking, what is that echo? It's all, and then I realized it was me. I went, oh. And I, and I told Phil about it later, and he was like, yeah, I heard that. That was really awful. Like, and so I love that Phil, is, and that's good to be surrounded by people that will be honest with you. And, you know, he could have gone, oh, no, no, it's not that bad. No, he went, it was terrible, man. That was bad. And so it's like, I can't sing. I'm, I wish I could. I just can't. And so thankfully, surrounded by people that can sing, and that's good, and you don't have to hear me. And so, But I, I really do love music, even though I don't have the talents to to produce it or, or to sing it or anything like that, but I do love music a lot. And what I'll do oftentimes is, is when uh, my favorite artists come out with a new album or whatever, I will set aside time where I, I don't have anything else to do. For me now, it's when the boys are in bed and it's usually late at night and I put on my headphones and I just listen. I, I close my eyes and I just want to hear. And so that's kind of the way I am. I really like music. If it's somebody that's maybe a bigger artist that you followed for a while, uh, a lot of times today, music blogs, the Internet, uh, music magazines will do previews of big albums that are coming out. So if it's one of my favorites, I love to read the preview before I've ever heard it. And I listen to what they talk about and what they say and what the songs may be and what they were thinking when they write them. And, and you kind of build it up in your mind and then you get to hear it. And so that's just something I like to do. Some people that may be totally foreign to you. But I remember a few years ago, well, I say a few years, it's been about 10 years ago, one of my favorite bands uh, is a band called Wilco, and their, their lead singer, Jeff Tweedy, writes all their music and all their songs. And I read this article about him, and he had written all these songs, and he was talking about what was behind them and what he was thinking as he read them. And, and it was real interesting to me, and I was excited to hear a particular song because he said, I wrote this song because my mom had just passed away this year. And I wrote this song really to comfort my father. And it was, it was kind of for me and my dad and dealing with losing my mom and all these things. And I remember reading that and thinking, man, I really want to hear this song. This just sounds really intense and kind of a real serious subject. And so I remember getting that album and listening to it. And you get to the last song and it's a song about his mother. It was called On and On and On. And I read it and he put on the headphones and I'm listening. And, and it says, uh, you know, I like the melody and the music. And it's kind of starting. You're like, oh, this is good. And then the word started. And he said, one day. We'll disappear together in a dream, however short or long our lives are going to be. I will live in you and you will live in me until we disappear together in a dream. Please don't cry. We were designed to die. Don't deny what's inside. We'll disappear together in a dream. And so what Jeff Tweedy suddenly said, I went, oh, so disappointed. 
I like this guy's songs and his music, and he says so many things that kind of challenge me at different times. And I was just, his, his worldview came shining through on how he was dealing with death. Death's just part of it. We're designed to die. Don't try to fight it. There's no reason to be upset. You'll live on in my memory, and I'll live in yours, and we'll disappear together in a dream, and that'll be it. And I thought, oh. And what Jeff Tweedy said, the lead singer, this, this lyricist said, is what a lot of people think. It's a pretty normal thing today. He said it in a little more poetic way, and it kind of softens the edges. But it's something that uh, uh, probably the most famous atheist today, Richard Dawkins, would say something very similar. If you don't know who Richard Dawkins is, he's written several bestseller books. The first being uh, The God Delusion. He talks about how God is a delusion and we need to get over that. And so he's become pretty popular uh, in those circles and those things. But he says something very similar, but he says it a little harsher when he says this. The universe is blind physical forces and genetic replication. Some people are going to get hurt. Others are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe, it was precisely the properties we should expect. There is nothing but pitiless indifference. And Dawkins will go on to say that anytime we try to deal with death and we try to deal with illness and we try to give reasons for it and we try to talk about it, he says what we're really doing is just a universal delusion. We're just trying to make sense out of what he calls pitiless indifference. That's pretty harsh when you think about it. It's a pretty difficult thing, but that's very similar to what the singer was saying on this album that I listened to. We're designed to die. That's just part of it. Don't cry about it. Just get over it and we'll, we'll float off together in a dream. And he starts thinking about that and he goes, is that what we say about suffering and illness and death? And that's the way we should look at that. Is that what we should take away when we think about what that looks like and how we should deal with it? It's a pretty difficult word to hear. And I, I say all that to say this morning we're going to continue in this series of, of trusting God in the midst of suffering. And one of the greatest sources of suffering in our life is sickness and illness and death. Those things always are pressing in at all times. Every one of us knows someone right now that either has an illness or sickness or maybe is close to death. Or maybe we've, we've been touched by death recently in our life. And so we, do we say, that's what we say. Pitiless indifference. Right? It's just a dream. It's uh, just embrace. That's what it looks like. Is that the way we should look at it? And I'd say, no. <laughs> Thankfully, that's not. And we're going to look at what Jesus says about it this morning as we think about it. And we're going to look at the passage that I just read to you a minute ago from John chapter 11. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. Again, it's on page 583 if you want to follow along in the Bibles that are there in the pew. And simply the way I want us to look at it is just to ask a couple questions. That's the way I usually do it. But the way we're going to look at it this morning is just simply to say this. First of all, faced with suffering, illness, death. And that's what we're looking at. And, we, and maybe you picked up in the reading. We're talking about Lazarus. And Lazarus was a close, close friend of Jesus Christ. He was one of his closest friends, kind of inner circle right there. They even say the one whom you love when they tell him he's sick. And what does Jesus say in the face of death, in the face of sickness of someone so close to him? And so we're going to ask, what does Jesus say about it? Secondly, what does he do about it? And then lastly, what does that teach us? Right. So what does he say about it? What does he do about it? What does it teach us? And so let's just start with what he says about it. And so if you begin in chapter 11, right at the beginning, you have this scene. And let me just set the scene. When we're jumping around in this series, we're kind of hitting different passages. Last week we were in Job and now we're in John 11. And so when we jump right into John's gospel, we need to at least, 
at least set the scene of where we are in John's gospel. Of the gospels, John's gospel is a little different than all the others in that he spends half of his gospel on Jesus' last week. Spends half of it on the very last week. And so you get to John chapter 11 and we're almost to the last week already. It's right before the last week. Uh, Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem and all those things are going to be set into place that's going to lead to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so here we are in John 11. We're really to the, the last week of Jesus's life, just about. And at this point, there's great opposition against Jesus. The religious leaders of the day are seeking to get rid of him. He, he threatens them greatly. There's a lot of political things behind that, but they are really shaken by who Jesus is. And so that's kind of what's swirling around Jesus as we get to this spot in John chapter 11. And as we do, as we get to it and we start to look at this, we see that that Jesus uh, is hearing about his friend Lazarus. And so just look there again, what it says in the first three verses. Now, there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And just real briefly right there at the beginning, we, we hit on this last week and I won't spend a long time on this. We saw this with Job as we looked at Job's life, Job's life, that he suffers all kinds of things, although Job seems to be a good and righteous man. God, in fact, says there's no one like Job on the earth. You see that right at the beginning of the book. And yet he suffers all these things. And I just made the point last week in passing, and I'll make it again, is that just because you have put your faith in Jesus, it does not insulate you from suffering. Sometimes people will try to spin Christianity that way. There will be uh, uh, sometimes very well-meaning people trying to get people to embrace Christianity. If you just put your faith in Jesus and you just have enough faith, everything will go well. The Bible doesn't promise that. And you read right here, here's Lazarus kind of in Jesus' inner circle, the one whom he loves, one of his closest friends, and he's ill. And you kind of go, man, he, he knows and he loves Jesus and he's trusting him, but yet he's ill. And you kind of go, what's going on? And so sometimes we, we start to paint things in, in different shades, but the truth is, Having a faith in Christ does not insulate you from suffering. It gives you great resources to deal with it. And I hope that's what we're seeing as we walk through this series. But it doesn't mean it removes it. Right. And so with his, that's kind of background. And as we're here, Jesus hears about him. So look at what he says. First question. What does he say? Verse four is the first thing he says. When Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is, the, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may glor be glorified through it. And so what he says is uh, uh, God is going to work through this and it's not going to lead to death. So he gets this word that, it, that Lazarus is sick and you see what's going on and he says it's not going to lead to death and God is going to be glorified in this. And then if you read on in verses 5 and 6, it says, and then he said, let's just stay here for a couple days. He waits. He doesn't go. He doesn't go right away, even though they sent the word and he just kind of hangs out right where he is. And then after that, after a couple of days, he says to the disciples, OK, let's go. Let's go meet Lazarus. And they head to the town. And as we just read a second ago in verse 17, it tells us as he's coming up on the town that Lazarus has already died. Not only has he already died, he's been dead for four days before Jesus arrives. And here he is coming up and Lazarus is dead. And so uh, you can imagine as the disciples hearing what he said, they're probably scratching their heads a little bit. Look, he just said, this is not going to lead to death. What's going on? What's happening here? And so they walk along with Jesus and they approach uh, the town where Lazarus lives in Bethany. And they're not quite there yet. And it tells us is that as he's coming, that Lazarus has already been dead. 
And so as Mary and Martha are, are mourning, they hear that he's coming and Martha races out to meet him. Uh, there's kind of a neat difference in personalities and things. You see this all throughout the Gospels. Mary and Martha are very different. Martha runs out to meet Jesus and Mary waits. And so you have Martha come flying out. And so look at the next thing that Jesus says in verse 20. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here with my brother, he would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so the first thing that Jesus says is your brother is going to rise again. Right? She comes out and he tells her this isn't the end for Lazarus. He's going to rise again. And so there we have right in the first thing he says in the midst of what's going on, a stark contrast to what Jeff Tweedy sings. Right? We're designed to die. And so just let it go. And it's OK. Jesus says the exact opposite. Your brother is going to rise again. This isn't the end. And so uh, in the face of that, Martha says what any good believing Jewish person of her day would say. She says, you're right. I know that he's going to rise again. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so you have to understand something about what's going on as Jesus speaks. And so we see this all throughout the Gospels. There's lots of times where Jesus says one thing and everybody else is thinking something different. And he's saying the truth and he's speaking the truth, but they're filtering it through the way they think. And so they're missing part of what he's saying. He says, your brother will rise. And she says, I know he will rise in the resurrection in the last day. Right? And so the Jews believed that the Messiah would come and he would overthrow governments and he would lead this renaissance and he'd bring everybody together. And then he'd usher in God's kingdom. And then the last day would come and it would all happen at once. There was no thought nobody was thinking that jesus is going to come and die in the middle of history be resurrected and then ascend and then come back again and so what she's talking about is thinking it all happens together with jesus as the messiah's first coming we would know seeing all of scripture that lazarus will rise again in the last day when jesus returns just like all those that have gone from now from the beginning of time you understand the difference she's thinking it one way jesus is saying it another way in fact, Jesus is saying in a couple ways that she doesn't see at all. So all that to say, Martha's response is a response of one of faith. Yeah, OK, he's going to be raised again on the last day, but she's not seeing all of it. But what I want to draw your attention to when we say what Jesus says here is it's a stark contrast to pitiless indifference. Right? He says, no, no, he's going to be raised again. And so she professes, but then Jesus goes further. And so look at what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. And so he starts to kind of correct her thinking and to, to think about and to shine a light on exactly what he came to do, even though she's not fully seeing it. She's not fully grasping it. Jesus turns and kind of corrects her thinking and says to her, I'm going to undo death. I am the resurrection and the life, and I'm coming to fix the problem that leads to death. That's what Jesus is telling her. And she's not fully grasping that. But when we see the scope of Scripture and we look at the whole thing, what we see and what the Bible tells us very clearly is the wages of sin is death. Death is entered because of our rebellion against God. And we are separated from God because of our sin. And that is our greatest need and our greatest problem in our life. 
And Jesus comes and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? If you know the rest of the verse, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and I'm coming to fix that problem. Now, Mary's not, I'm sorry, Martha is not seeing all of that completely here. But what he's saying to her, right, he even corrects and he says it, of course he says it perfectly, perfect accord with all of Scripture because God is the Word and Jesus is the Word. But look at what he says. I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. All those that have gone before us and died are going to be resurrected in the last day to stand before God. And he says, and those who live, who believes in me, uh, I'm sorry, verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so if we are fortunate enough to still be drawing breath when Jesus returns, we don't die. <laughs> we get to go directly in with him. And so what Jesus says is perfectly correct. They're just not quite grasping all of it, right? And so what he just laid out there is a pretty huge theology lesson right there to Martha in the midst of her suffering as she comes running out. He is not done. He's going to be resurrected. And it's going to come through me. This is going to be fixed and it's going to be my doing and what I do. I am the resurrection and the life. And so when you look at what Jesus says and the way he looks at it, he says three things there. God's going to be glorified in this. Your brother is going to be raised and it's going to happen through me. That's what he tells her. That's what he says in the face of death and the suffering that leads to it. And so that I want you just to think about that for a second. It's a far cry from what Richard Dawkins says. Pitiless indifference and there's no rhyme and reason. And Jesus says, uh, sin has caused death and I'm going to undo it. Very different. And I just want to submit to you that Jesus' way is a whole lot more comforting. And it gives you a lot more to deal with sin and suffering and death in the face of it versus pitiless indifference. All right, so that's what he says, but look at what he does next, right? So he comes in and it tells us that Mary's kind of stayed back in the house. And then we read just a second ago that they come and they tell her that Jesus wants to see you. And so finally Mary gets out and she comes to Jesus and look at what happens in verse 32. And so we've seen what he says. Now, what does he do? So verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. And so he weeps. The first thing that you see him do is he gets there, he he addresses Martha, and then he goes, and then the first thing he actually does is he weeps. He says, show me where he is. And then he weeps. And you see in that moment, you see this picture with Mary and with Martha and with all that's happening here, you see this incredibly compelling picture of the divinity of Jesus and his humanity perfectly together. That's our great confession of our faith that Jesus is fully God and fully human, that he comes and he takes on everything that we have and everything that we deal with. And he walks in this world and he experiences those things. But yet he's still fully God. He's fully God and he's fully man. And so the first thing he says as he walks up is he says, I'm going to undo this and it's coming through me. That's a pretty incredible claim to his divinity. But then the next thing he does is you see him show up and he looks around and it says that he sees the mourning and he sees the weeping and he sees what's going on around them and he weeps. You grasp that? God in the flesh facing death and he walks up and he just breaks down and weeps with them. 
But Hebrews 4 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. It's talking about Jesus, our great high priest who's been tempted in every way and knows everything we go through. He says, so you can draw near because he knows what you're going through. It's a beautiful picture of his humanity and his deity and it perfectly together. And so Jesus weeps. And so here he is with his dear friends. We know Mary and Martha were very near and dear to Jesus. He spent a lot of time with them. They show up in the Gospels a lot. We know that about Lazarus, their brother. They've, they've shared meals. They've had Jesus in their home. He's been there. And so there he is feeling all of this. Right? The same that you feel when you go to the funeral of a close friend or relative or loved one. And there's Jesus in the midst of all of it, feeling the same things. And he's feeling it. But I think the picture, that, uh, the thought that comes to my mind, uh, we just read the story. I'm not spoiling this for you. You know what he's going to do. He's going to go tell Lazarus to get up. Jesus knows what he's going to do. He's already told them this is going to lead to God's glory. I'm working here. He's telling them. But yet he weeps. He could, he could have just skipped the weeping and go straight to the, just get up, Lazarus, and we'll have a party here. But yet he weeps. And I think part of that, part of that is Jesus being perfectly God, perfect man, all of it perfectly together, is he's weeping not just for Lazarus, but he's weeping for death. He's weeping for all the funerals and all the people and all the stuff ever. And he sees all of it and he feels all of it perfectly. You ever think about that? Jesus in no way is self-centered because he's perfect. He's not selfish. That's why Jesus is weeping all the time, because he feels what everyone around him feels perfectly. Because he's not so concerned about himself like we are. And so he weeps. And I think it's not just that, but it's all of it. And so the first thing he does is he weeps. But then look at the next thing. Look at verse. Actually, go back to 33 for just a second. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with also with her, also her weeping, he's deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And then look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone that lay against it. And you read that and you say he's deeply moved in the midst of what's going on. You go, man, he's feeling for Lazarus, the one whom he loved. And it makes sense. He's deeply moved. Does it not? You go, yeah, absolutely. And there's Mary and Martha whom he loves and he cares for, and they're weeping. And, they're up, and Jesus is deeply moved. And we can read it that way. And read it in context and go, yes, he's deeply moved. That makes perfect sense. He's overcome with emotion. And that's true. That's true. But if we just stop there, we miss a key part of what's going on here. Part of it's translation, and it's hard to get it across with what's saying or being said here. But when it talks about Jesus being deeply moved, it actually has the connotation in the Greek of being angry. Of being furious. In fact, the word that's used is often, uh, often applied to like a snorting animal. That Jesus is so angry at what's happening in front of him, what's going on. And he's not just deeply moved and weeping and sad, although he's sympathizing with them and he knows what's going on and he's feeling it. He's also furious. And so you go, well, what's go what is he mad at? Is he mad at Lazarus? I don't think so. Is he mad at Mary and Martha? I don't think so. Is he mad at... No, I don't think that's what's going on. And so you go, well, what's going on here? Jesus is furious that the wages of sin is death. 
that this is not the original plan. I created you to be in perfect relationship with me, trusting me, walking with me, and we rebelled and all this mess comes as a result. And he's furious. He's almost snorting. Think of that as as an A. Have you ever been so mad? Right? Like you get like that ever? Sometimes I get that with my kids. Don't make me say that again! Right? I'm going to walk off. But you get so mad. And I don't mean to make light of it in those moments. In fact, as I was thinking about Jesus deeply moved and what's going on, I kept thinking, I always think in movies. Certain scenes in movies that come to mind. There's a movie years ago, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. It's called A Time to Kill. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson was this guy in, in like Mississippi, I think. And he had a 12-year-old daughter. And the movie starts with she is brutally violated. And it is awful. It is awful. And, he, and it doesn't show all that, but it's made clear what's happened to his 12-year-old daughter. And all this stuff that goes on. And you're just... It's one of those movies where it makes you feel sick. Right. And you're so with him in this character. And he goes to visit her in the hospital and she's barely hanging on for life. And she said, I called for you, Daddy. And he's just like. Right. And so the movie is he goes and he shoots the two guys that did this to his daughter. And then it's all about his trial, whether that was justified or not. And it raises a whole lot of questions. But when I watch that movie and I see Samuel L. Jackson hear this from his 12 year old little girl that this has happened and he's ready. That's Jesus here. As he looks at death and he looks at what's going on and he walks up to Lazarus' tomb and he's seething. Can you feel it? Can you see that? You think about Jesus walking up to what's going on here. And here he's wept and he feels it and he knows it and he walks up and there he is. And then look at what he says. Look at what he does next in the midst of that with his anger and his rage. Look at what he says in verse 39. And so he said, take away the stone. And Martha said, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by, the, by this time there will be an odor for he'll be dead for four days. Right. That's a reasonable thing to say. Martha says, just are you sure you want to do this? This is not going to smell good. Right. And so she tells him and Jesus says, no, he tells her to go ahead. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Can you imagine that? You're standing there with her. You're you're weeping over your brother and Jesus says, just move it. Didn't I tell you you're going to see my glory? Can you imagine being there? Just thinking, I go, okay, we'll move it, right? Can you imagine Jesus saying to that? And so then Jesus says, he lifted up his, his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so he says to her, just imagine, he he turns to her and says, didn't I tell you you're going to see God's glory? And then he prays. He says, Father, I know you hear me. I don't have any doubts here, but I'm saying this for everybody else. Do you follow when we talk about uh, Hebrews 4? He sympathizes with our weakness. He knows what we're going through. He has the presence of mind to stop and say, I'm going to pray so that you guys understand what's going on here. But he even says in his prayer, I don't need I don't need the reassurance. I know what's happening, but I'm saying it on their behalf. And when you think about it, knowing 
Uh, Jesus, knowing all things, knowing John's going to write this down, inspired by the Spirit. Jesus is really saying for our benefit. I'm going to go ahead and stop and pray so that you realize what's going on here. That I'm in control and I'm doing this. And so he prays and then he calls Lazarus out. If you've ever heard this passage before, you have preachers like to say this, but you can't go through without saying it. Right? Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Because if he would have just said come out, they would all come out. Right? He's got to call Lazarus by name because they're going to have zombie apocalypse if he doesn't. Right? And so he says, Lazarus, come out. And he undoes death. And he does it right in front of all of them. And he shows them. And so there he is, uh, deeply moved, weeping. And then it turns to this rage of anger. And then he goes over and he undoes it. And now part of it is Jesus undoes Lazarus' death here. Does he not? He comes out. People would rejoice. They'd be excited. But the question is, is Lazarus going to die again? He is. Right? Yeah, I don't know how many years later. The Bible doesn't tell us. Lazarus is going to die again. And so it's kind of like a stay of what's going on. But I want you to think about it, is Jesus kind of gets angry at this and he sees what's going on. That's why the context is important and the way John sets this up and the way he shows us. When Jesus does this, when he goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead, he knows in those moments if he's angry and furious and he's ready to go to war against sin and death, he knows the moment he does this, he's signing his death for it. He knows that the religious leaders are now going to seek to put him to death when he raises Lazarus. He knows it. And yet he does it anyway. And I think that's part of him going, oh, I'm ready to go do this. And if you read on, if you look at verse 53, it actually says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Right? They said, we can't have this. Everybody's going to go after him. It's going to be the end of us. We've got to get rid of this guy. And so they started making plans to put him to death. And so I think part of Jesus's rage was the rage over sin and death, but also knowing what's going to come. And he's ready for all of it. And he walks right into it. And so when you say, well, what does Jesus do? He weeps. And then he grows extremely furious and angry. And then he does something about it. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And a week later, he'll go and he'll end death and sin forever. And so when you look at this picture and you look at what this teaches us and how do we deal with illness and and death and the suffering that comes with it in the midst of our life. Last week, we talked about Job. And we said, when we look at Job, here's suffering that we don't understand. Job seemed to be doing things correctly. He's seeking after God. Everybody who's lobbing criticisms at him are wrong. Job was a righteous man who was seeking the Lord and yet he was still suffering. And what we saw with Job is that even when we don't understand that God is at work, we said God's at work even when we don't see it and we can't understand. But this week when we look at Lazarus and what Jesus is doing, we could say even when we don't understand, God does understand what we're going through. He understands all of it. He's felt the pain of it. He knows every bit of the suffering that goes with it. And he cares deeply. And he not only cares and he doesn't just weep with us and he doesn't just feel it with us, but then he goes incredibly angry and he says, I'm going to go and do it. I'm going to walk willingly to the cross to take on sin and death and overturn it. And so in the midst of our suffering and the midst of our pain and our heartache, we know that he knows it. He knows all of it. He knows every bit of it. And he is not indifferent. It is the exact opposite of pitiless indifference. 
is a suffering king that says, I'm going to walk into it with you and I'm going to undo it for you. And so we have incredible resources as we look at pain and suffering and as we begin to face death and what that looks like. We know that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's going to undo it. And so even when it's difficult for a time, we know the end. And so we can rest in what he's going to do. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for John chapter 11. I thank you for Lazarus. Thank you for the witness uh, of what you were doing. I thank you as you prayed, as you stopped and prayed. I'm doing this so that you, we would see. We would see what you're doing. That we would uh, trust you all the more. We thank you that you know our suffering. That you're not a far off God. That you entered in and you walked through this with us. That you care. That you get angry at sin and death. And that you are undoing it and remaking it. And for that we thank you. And we praise your glorious name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.